When you come to the Bible, and when you come specifically to the Christian faith, the Christian religion, although I don't use that word very often, because we talk of a relationship and not religion, right? But let me just say that from a very technical standpoint, the Christian religion. When you come to it, there's an important distinction that needs to be noticed, that needs to be made. It needs to be understood. What is it? What is that distinction? It is this. The God of the Bible pursues us. The God of the Bible pursues man. You see, religion, as far as it goes, is about man pursuing God trying to climb the ladder to reach God, trying to bridge the chasm to get to the, the place where God is, trying to do all those good things, whether it's the five pillars of Islam or the four paths of Hinduism or whatever it may be. But the Christian religion is different. The Christian faith is different. Because in the Bible, the Bible teaches us that it's God who's taken on the action. It's God whose actions are taken to pursue us. He wants to know us. He wants to have relationship with us. And there's nothing that he wouldn't do to move out to, to pursue you, to know you, that you might be drawn into a perfect relationship with him. And because of this, there is nowhere you can go to escape his pursuit. There's nowhere you can go. I mean, you may try. You may try to do whatever you think you're going off on your own tangent. You think you're getting away with stuff. You think you're doing your thing. But God is still going to be on your path. He's still going to be pursuing you. The Bible describes all men and women this way. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each and every one of us has gone our own way. So we really are like the wandering sheep and it's the great shepherd of the word that goes after the lost sheep. The, 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 the lost sheep don't go after the shepherd. It's the shepherd that, go at, that goes after the lost sheep. Now, several years ago, I, I wrote a book, and I, I've mentioned it a couple times, but if you'll permit me tonight, I want to read just a little section because tonight's message is actually the same title as the very first chapter of my book that's called Who is Jesus? And in that chapter, I talk about God's pursuit of us. I talk about God's pursuit of the wandering soul. So let, let me just read a little portion of that. God has gone out after us, and not just in the embodiment, the incarnation of the Christ, from the very moment that Adam and Eve sinned, God went to them in the Garden of Eden to talk. Christianity is not a religion devoted to man finding God. It is an account of God's pursuit of you and how he wants to bring you into a right relationship with himself. The good shepherd's pursuit of us is clearly seen in the life of 19th century Englishman Francis Thompson an English writer born in 1859 to a devout Roman Catholic family. Thompson moved to London after college to pursue a writing career. He became addicted to drugs while writing poetry in London, and eventually he found himself living on the streets. Thompson's most famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, eloquently describes God's pursuit of the human soul. He says this in The Hound of Heaven. 
I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. Living in the cold gutters of London, Thompson realized that no matter how far he ran or what he did, the hound of heaven still pursued him. In the hound of heaven, he goes on, from those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase, an unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat, more instant than the feet. You see, God did not give up the chase after Francis Thompson, and he's pursuing you with the same unperturbed pace and deliberate speed. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. Even when you find yourself in the desert, he pursues you. He speaks to you. He calls to you. And he knocks on your heart's door. God expresses his pursuit throughout Scripture. You remember the examples. Jonah fled, tried to get away from the call of God. God tracked him down. Paul, who persecuted the Christians, was there with papers wanting to take them into custody was knocked off of his horse with blinding light and the call of God, the call of Christ to follow him. So the point is this, that God is the pursuer of man. And we'll see that tonight, even in the fall of man, as we look at it in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at the fall of man, and we'll take a look at the enemy, the enemy of man and what temptation is. So let's read tonight in Genesis 3, The first question tonight is, who is the enemy? Let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. If you're reading along, I'm in the New King James. It says this, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Now chapter 3 of Genesis, it starts out suddenly. Here we have been in Genesis 1 and 2. We've been in this grand story of the creation, the days of creation, and then in chapter 2 talking about the Sabbath rest and the making of woman that we learned about, the glorious creation of God, amen. And then all of a sudden, yeah, one step further from the earth, 
Talked about that last week, right? And then all of a sudden you come to chapter 3, you turn the page. And, and suddenly there's this character, this character, the serpent. The question is, who is this? What is he doing in the garden? That's the question. If you remember from our very first message in Genesis, if you go back to the very first Genesis, message in Genesis that we did, it was called the foundation of faith. And in the introduction to that message, I talked about how most of us, if you grew up in the church, you grew up with what Dinesh D'Souza calls a crayon Christianity. You, you grew up with kind of, kind of a crayon picture of the, the, the history of the Bible. You know, much of that's because we grew up in Sunday school and children's church and flannel graph. I remember when they used, remember, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about, flannel graph. Yeah, they had the Bible characters and they were flannel and they had this board and you put the characters on the Bible and you told the story, right? And, and that's kind of the thing because we were raised in that and built up in that from a very early age, there's kind of a degree to which that's the perception that we carry on into adulthood. But Dinesh makes the point that we need to get a crisper, clearer picture. We need to kind of go beyond the crayon picture that we grew up with. We need to get an HD picture. We need to dive back into the text. We need to dive back into the Word so that we get that HD, and let me say 4K. Amen? Right. We need a 4K. We need to go from the crayon picture to the 4K picture because many of you guys have 4K displays on your phone, so don't, don't look at me like I'm crazy. I'm not the crazy one, right? So we need that crisp, clear picture, and no more so than getting a crisp and clear picture of who the enemy of our soul is. And this is one of the, one of the places where we have a crayon version in our minds. And, and, and we as 21st century Christians, we need to have a, an HD picture because we're dealing with a real enemy, a real spiritual enemy. And, and we need to get that crispness so that our faith can rest on the firm foundation of the truth of God's word. So the truth is there in the text. And there needs to be, it needs to be understood. Part of the confusion that centers around the serpent, and there's much confusion. Let's, let's be honest with ourselves. There's a lot of confusion with this text. Part of the confusion comes from, let me put it this way, an incorrect inference from the first verse. It says, the serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field. The incorrect inference is that the serpent is a beast of the field. It doesn't say that he's a beast of the field. It says that he's more cunning than any of the beasts of the field. But it's a serpent, right? So it's a serpent more cunning than the end of the field. And I can see where the inference is made. The dots were connected for us. The question is, what and who is this serpent? What and who is this serpent? The word serpent here in the Hebrew text is a word that you're perhaps unfamiliar with, but I want to introduce it to you tonight because I think it's going to begin to crisp up that picture for you. The word serpent here in the Hebrew is the word nakash. Nakash. The word is used, this word, nakash, is used in three forms 
in the Hebrew language. It's used as a noun, it's used as a verb, and it's used as an adjective. So it's, it's a word that can be all three of those parts of speech. As a noun, it can be, trans, it can be translated serpent, as a noun. As a verb, it can be translated is, it is a diviner, a diviner, having to do with divination. Divination refers to the communication with the supernatural world. And we can see that there's divination happening here because there's communication with the supernatural world because we know as we get to know who this enemy is, we know that he's of the supernatural, that he's of that unseen realm. And we see all that happening here in Genesis 3. Now the word nakash can be used as an adjective and it means bronze or shining. Bronze or shining. Bronze or brass, when polished, are shiny. Nekosheth, which is a form of that word, nekosheth, nakash. Nekosheth is another Hebrew word similar to the one that is actually used to describe the divine beings in Daniel 10 verse 6. So it is actually a form of this word actually used to describe supernatural beings. Let me give you an example of this. We have a word in the English, the word running. How many, people, how many like running? Anybody like running? I don't like running. I like running water. <clears throat> I tried running once. It wasn't for me. I did it. I did it faithfully for like six weeks. That seemed like a long time. You laugh, but it seemed like a long time when I was running every day, running around this little lake that was right by our house. And I ended up with, you know, just bruised up legs. So I said, you know what? Eh, not going to do running. I'll do biking or something else. Anyways, the word running. As a noun, running is a good form of exercise for some. As a verb, the engine is running. As an adjective, running paint is an eyesore. Running paint is an eyesore. And so when you have words like this, there are times that authors want all three forms to be considered. If the question was asked, if I asked this question, how has your reading been? What pops into your mind? The reader really can be forced to think of all three forms. Do I mean the latest assignment of reading that you were given, perhaps by a teacher or a pastor? Am I wondering about your eyesight, your reading? How's your reading been? Can you, you know what I mean? And the, then the reading becomes an adjective. Or... Is it the process of reading being implied? A verb, the process of reading. In reading Genesis chapter 3, there are many clues in the story that the serpent is more than a mere snake. To, only, to understand that the nakash here is a mere snake is, is to not catch everything from all the clues and everything that there is to know about this particular word. 
and especially as we unpack it throughout Scripture and the rest of Scripture begins to come to bear upon these passages. There are many clues that the serpent is more than a mere snake. He may be a divine adversary. Let me say that. The term nakash here in Genesis 3 really is what we call a triple entendre. A triple entendre. And that's where you've got a lot of meanings coming from the different types of words. Now, the nakash is called a serpent, for sure. He is a serpent. We find out in Revelation, he's the dragon of old, the serpent, right? He is a diviner. He is from the unseen realm. He is from the supernatural world. He is divining and he brings that communication and his temptation with man. Not just Eve here in the garden, but throughout history, we see this divination that is involved with this person. He is shiny. He is shiny. He's called the shining one. The shining one. Looking at other texts that are connected to this being, namely Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, Satan is described in many ways. He was shiny. Let's just take a look at that one. He was shiny. He was shining. That kind of adjective form of nakash. Ezekiel 28, verse 13. You'll see it on the screen. He says this. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. You were in Eden, and look at this flash of light. It's coming from you. It was shiny. He was shiny, Nakash. He was a diviner. He had close proximity to the throne of God. In the very next verse, Ezekiel 28, 14, he says this, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were an anointed cherub who covers. The cherub is a rank of a high-ranking spiritual being, divine being, that was given charge over literally, uh, they were called throne guardians. In fact, uh, you would look around, if you look into uh, the ancient literature and even uh, in, in the Hebrew literature, as Solomon built the temple, you had these depictions of these cherub, the cherubim, right? And they were the, 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 the throne guardians. They were covered the, the, the throne, you with me? Yes. Think of the Ark of the Covenant. What is it? It's the throne of God in the midst of what, 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 what was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim, with their wings folded towards covering the throne of God. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I established you. And you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Commentators have connected fiery stones to the... The angelic beings. Angelic beings are, are called stars in, in the Bible. The 
you, you, you walked back and forth in the midst of these fiery stones, in the midst of the divine council. You were a, th- you were a guardian. You were a, you were a throne guardian. You were a cherub. And you walked, you walked in and out amongst the fiery stones. You walked in and out. You were a part of this divine council. And then it goes on till iniquity, iniquity was found in you. He raised up his pride and he, he wanted to be higher than the Lord, the Lord God. So the divine being, this divine being, this Nakash, he fell from heaven. When that pride rose up in his heart, when he wanted to be like the Most High, when he wanted to raise up a throne equal to, perhaps greater than, the Lord God, he sinned a great rebellion in his heart, and he was discharged from heaven. He was thrown out of the divine council. He fell away from God in his pride. Now, God in the Bible has many, many names. One of those names is I want you to be very familiar with, and it is this, El Elyon. El Elyon. And what does it mean? It equals God Most High. God Most High. Because he is the Lord of hosts, there is a host of heaven. Amen? And that host of heaven was a part of a divine council in which God rules. And he, he, he orchestrates his government and his rule and, and, and what he does from this divine council. And here we had one of these members, this throne guardian, this cherub, that wanted to lift his throne above the Most High, and so he fell. He fell. And Jesus is recorded as saying this in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. You'll see it on the screen. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So then, Satan is cast out of heaven. He's cast out from being a part of this divine council. He's cast out from this this post of this, this throne guardian. And now he's here in the garden with Eve, with Eve. And he turns his focus on being the adversary of God and the adversary to man. Because man was put on the earth as the image of God. Remember, we talked about that. That we were made in the image, we were made as the image. We were made as the image to rule and reign, to have dominion, to take dominion over the earth, to rule and reign upon the earth as the image of God. And so now, because he's positioned himself as adversary to God, he's now going to position himself as adversary to man. He's going to do whatever he can to take down the image of God. He's madder than fire because now he has been kicked out of the divine counsel, and God, through creating Adam and Eve and giving them the mandate to procreate and fill the earth, is now adding to the family of God. You see, Adam was called a son of God. And now the idea is that man is going to populate the earth. And so this Nakash positions himself as the adversary, which is actually what the word Satan means, it's adversary, but then it becomes a title. 
as well. Let's move on. So now we have a better, a little bit of a better crisp picture of who the enemy is. This Nakash, this serpent, this, this diviner, this divine being, this cherub, shining one, coming now to tempt man, to bring man down. So the second question tonight is, what is the temptation? What is temptation? The Nakash, the serpent, speaks to the woman, Eve, and he tempts her. He asks a question. It's kind of a sly way to begin a conversation, right? It's a good way, but you got to be on your guard, especially when it's the Satan. He asks, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Here's the first thing we learn about temptation. Temptation challenges the validity of the command of God and the word of God. It's a direct challenge to the validity of the word of God, the command of God. And this is what he does. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You can always discern temptation because it, 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 will, it, will, it will challenge the validity of God's word. If, if, you have, if there is something that is challenging the validity of God's word, bells go off. Your temptation bells go off because this is your discernment. This is temptation. Did God really say? Did God really say? In other words, you don't have to believe this. Did God really say? I mean, really, what are you believing in? What are you putting your trust in? You don't have to believe God. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Second thing we learn is that temptation challenges the truthfulness of God's word. The serpent goes on, you won't die. She just said, if we, if we, do, if we do this, we're going to die. God said, the Lord God said, we're going to die. He says, you won't die. It's a direct challenge. It's not coming in from the right or the left. It's a head-on challenge to the truthfulness of God's word. You won't die. In fact, the Satan goes on, the Nakash. He says, no, God is holding out on you. God knows that when you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding out of you for whatever reason. He said, you, don't, you know, you shouldn't eat this. But God knows you're not going to die. What's going to happen is you're going to be like him. You're going to know good and evil. The lie is that she was already like God. Amen? Yeah. Made in perfection. Made as the image. Made as the image. And here is the Satan. Lying. From the beginning. Of course, Jesus told us that, right? He lies from the beginning. He's the liar. And when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. Yes. She was made as the image. Now, verse 6, here in Genesis 3, really is, it needs to be seen as a classic definition of temptation in the Bible. Verse 6 says this, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. 
This verse, these three things that she sees in this fruit need to be seen as the classic parts, the classic points of temptation. In fact, John the Apostle alludes to these three points in his epistle in 1 John 2, 16. You'll see it on the screen. He says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the flesh. She saw that it was good for food. She saw that it was good for food. Food is what feeds the flesh, right? So this really is the lust of the flesh. The temptation is that it is the lust of the flesh. She sees that the fruit is good for food. Now, was the fruit good for food? It probably was. That's not the point. The point is something could be good and useful for whatever it is that you think it could be good and useful for. But God has said, no, don't do that. That's the point. So it's not a matter of pragmatism. It's not a matter of, well, this works. See, this is the lie that everyone, that we've all bought into this lie one way or another, one time or another in our lives. And the world has bought into this one hook, line, and sinker because they bought into a pragmatic way of looking at things, whether they be right or wrong. Well, this works. This works for me. This, this does it for me. That's not the point. God is, is the, he's the essence of truth. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the essence of truth. And so what he has said is true, and we need to realize that that's the standard. That's the standard of truth, and that's the standard of righteousness. And so whether something is good for whatever you think it's good for, if God has commanded that not to be done, that particular action not to be done, that is the issue. This is where the distinction comes in. It's not where whether something is pragmatic or not. It comes down to what God commanded. God commanded, God said, don't eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden. You can eat of any tree that is in the garden. Can you imagine? They have a whole garden to eat of. But of the tree that is in the midst of the, of the garden, you shall not eat of it. Well, this one's good for food. Well, the other ones are good for food too. So there's a way that God has provided for what our flesh needs, what our flesh desires, the drive of our flesh. There is a way to fulfill that in a godly way. And then there's an ungodly way. There's a sinful way to do that. And what our, what our sinful fallen flesh wants to do is it wants to run headlong into over here into this pragmatic area of saying, well, this is good, this is good, this is good. And it's out of the bounds of what God has established. It's out of the bounds. You can eat of any tree in the garden, but the tree that is in the midst of the garden, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of it. It's, a stark, it's, a, it's an amazing picture, really, when you look at it from that standpoint. Jesus was tempted in all three of these areas, by the way. Jesus was tempted with the lust of the flesh. In Matthew 4, Jesus was on a 40-day fast after his baptism, and he was led out into the desert, 
and he was tempted by the Satan. And Satan said in Matthew 4, 3, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. And this was a temptation of the lust of the flesh. His flesh was hungry. But Jesus responded with the command of God, right? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So I'm not going to give in to your narrow little pragmatic thing that you want me to do because God's word says this over here and he's provided everything that I need over here. And so I'm not going to give in to your little narrow thing because it's going to, it's going to derail the whole thing. So Jesus responded. The second thing, the second area of temptation, first one, lust of the flesh. Second one, lust of the eyes. She saw how pretty and desirable it was. It was pretty. It was a pretty fruit. We don't know what it was. People think it was an apple. Look at this. This is the problem, folks, the bite out of the apple. Okay? One of the world's largest companies established in the 20th century to tell us what the problem is. It's pretty. It's, it's, it's neat. I'm going to put one of these apples with a bite out of it on a sticker on the back of my car and ride around town now. You know how, like, yeah, every product they gave you, like, it's like 14 stickers in the box, you know. Put this on your stuff. It was pretty, pleasing to the eye. I'm sure it was, right? I'm sure it was. There's a lot of stuff that's pleasing to the eye that for me is off limits. The fruit of appeal to her sense of beauty. And when something is beautiful, it's desirable. Now, I can desire it in line with God's commands. Amen? Something that is beautiful, I can desire it in line with God's commands. But when I step out of bounds, when I step out of line with God's commands, even though it is beautiful, and I may desire it because it is beautiful, it's, it's out of bounds and it's, it's, it falls into the area of what God calls sin. It's the lust of the eyes. Is it wrong to desire a woman? She's beautiful. That's why I went out and found myself a beautiful woman. Amen? <laughs> went out and found myself a beautiful woman. Desire her in the right way. Amen? So guys, there you go. That's what you do. Amen. Beautiful inside and out. Inside and out. In every which way, beautiful. Amen. Desirable. But it can be beautiful, but out of bounds for what God has for us in his word. Amen. Must be, God, must be done God's way. Must be done according to God's commands. Jesus was tempted with the lust of the eyes. Satan took Jesus up to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, part of God's plan was that Jesus, part of God's plan, 
the Father to give to the Son the kingdoms of the world. Part of the plan of God, the Father to give to the Son the kingdoms of the world. But here is the Satan saying, look at this, I will give you the kingdoms of this world. Some commentators have suggested that he, I don't know if he could have taken him up on a high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world. We won't get into that tonight. Some commentators have suggested reviewing the historical great kingdoms of the earth, showing that and the ones that were presently on the earth and so on and so forth. Now, Jesus could have said, wow, this is a whole lot easier. This, is, this, is, this works. Because I know the Father has sent me to die. He sent me to go to Jerusalem and die. I'm going to be handed over to the Romans. It's going to be a gruesome thing. I'm going to lay my life down. It's not going to be pretty. This is much easier. Here the Satan's just going to hand me the, the kingdoms of the world. No. No. You see... Jesus could have said that. But what he did say was this. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Again, Jesus modeling when you come up to that lust of the eyes. The third area of temptation, the pride of life. She took of the forbidden fruit when she believed that it was desirable to make one wise. The pride of life. So when the woman saw that the tree was a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of it and ate of it. How smart the fruit would make her. Man, this is going to be great. I'm going to eat of this fruit. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to be seen as someone, you know, better. I'm going to be seen by those around. I'm going to be seen. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to have this higher stature. It's going to make me wise. It's going to give me this wisdom that this diviner is talking about. Was it going to make her wise? Well, it will. It, it will. It did give her carnal knowledge of right and wrong. Carnal knowledge, yeah, you know the definition. The word to know in Hebrew is the word is yada. It's actually to know in the most intimate way that something could be known. It's actually a euphemism for, um, you know, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived, okay? So you get the idea, okay? So it's, it's that type of knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge, and that's what she would gain by eating of the tree. Sometimes we choose things based on how it will make us appear, maybe more liked, more envied. When we do this, we pursue the pride of life, which is not what God has for us. God has a better way, and Jesus was tempted in this way as well. Satan took Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple, in Jerusalem. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. 
Doesn't the word say that God will give his angels charge of you, over you and they will, they will run to lift you up, to bear you up that you might not get, dash your foot against the stone? Does this not say, does the word, does the psalmist not write this of the Messiah? Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does indeed. Amen. This will prove ev to everyone that you are the son of God whom you say that you are. This will do it, Jesus. And Jesus replied, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So this, is, this was the temptation. Eve fell prey. She saw, she saw that it was good for food. She saw that it was desirable, beautiful. She saw that it was good to make one wise. She fell prey to the to that threefold temptation, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And so Eve ate the fruit. And the text says, and she gave also to Adam to eat. Now what happened? Let's, look, let's pick it up. Back in Genesis 3, verse 7, it says this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Their eyes were opened. At this point, they had an intimate knowledge of good and evil. Again, you could call it carnal knowledge. They saw that they were naked. They are now ashamed. Remember that verse after the, the man and the woman were together and they were joined together? Then that was that kind of that, that summary verse that the man and the woman were together. They were naked and they were unashamed. Remember, we kind of, I kind of had us kind of pause on that because this was kind of that, that picture of the, the, the beauty of the, of the creation and, and the wholeness of it. And it was going to become a stark contrast to what was going to happen as we turn the page to chapter 3. And here they are. They disobeyed the God. They entered into rebellion. And here they are, knowing that they're naked. Ashamed of the nakedness. Ashamed. They have shame. So what they do? They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Fig leaves. Man, that doesn't sound comfortable. It's a far cry from a Nike dry fit, right? <laughs> they covered themselves with fig leaves and they hid. They hid from who? Well, the text tells us they heard the Lord God walking in the garden. Now, wait a second. The Lord God was walking in the garden? Check it out. And we've gotten into this a little bit. We'll get into it a little bit more. We're going to get into this idea of the angel of Yahweh. The angel, it's, a, it's the second person of the Trinity. It's, a, it's an embodied Christ before the, the human embodiment. As he came and was born in Bethlehem as a babe, you have this embodiment of the angel of Yahweh, the Lord God, walking in the cool of the day. And it seems to me that this was something that they were familiar with. It seems to me the way that it's written, this, they were familiar with him walking and being with them. And, and here they heard him walking in the cool of the garden at the cool of the day. And, and they heard the Lord God. And they hid. 
Here the Lord, the Lord God, is coming after them. The Lord God is pursuing Adam and Eve. Here they have fallen from that place. Here they have disgraced themselves. They know that they're naked. Here they are. They're they're, they're sewing fig leaves together. They're running. They're hiding in the trees. And here the Lord God is coming to them, reaching out to them, wanting to talk to them, wanting to find them, wanting to be with them. Here the Lord is coming after them. He's pursuing them. He's the hound of heaven. He's giving chase. And they hid themselves from him in the trees. But not only did he come walking in the cool of the day, the text tells us that he calls out to them. And this is exactly what God does. He said, Adam, where are you? Where are you? And isn't this exactly like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? He came after you. He comes after you. With that, that, that deliberate speed, that undeterred pace, he comes after you. And not only does he come after you, but he calls out to you. And he calls, he says, where are you? Where are you? I, I, I know you've wandered off the path. And, and, and I'm here to find you. I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to be, the, to be your rescuer. I'm here to do something about what you've done. I'm the one that can do something about it. And so those feet chased after them, those feet, and they chase after you. And a voice beats more instant than the feet. And he calls out to you. And he calls out to you. He calls and calls. He calls and calls. And people shut it out. They drowned it out. They said, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear that. The call comes. They know it's the call. They know the Lord is calling them. They know the Lord is pursuing. They're hiding. They're sowing fig leaves. They're hiding in the, in the trees, ashamed. There's the call. <laughs> the call of the Lord. The call of the Lord. Yeah, it's 2017. Let's turn your phones off. but he continues to pursue you. He continues to pursue you. Next week, we'll get into what he does. He's the one that covers their nakedness. He covers the nakedness. He covers the shame. It's the first picture in the Bible, a picture of the sacrifice. The The blood of those animals was shed for the skin's that provided the covering. The the idea of covering is atonement. He's the one. It's a a foreshadowing of the atonement work that Christ would make on our behalf. But we'll get into that. And so I don't want you to miss next week. Do not miss next week because honestly, next week, and bring somebody along with you, amen? Next week perhaps is one of the most foundational nights of all as we're going to look at the first gospel, the first gospel in the Bible, amen? And so the hound of heaven, he goes after you, he calls after you. And if you're away from him now, the call goes out right now for you to respond. 
Will you respond to him? Will you respond to the call of Christ to come back from the misery of your sin, to come back to the wholeness that he has for you? Will you do it? The call goes out.